Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Judges. Turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1, and if you have one of these Bibles that has this little ribbon thing in it, go ahead and stick one of those ribbon things in the book of Judges, because we are going to be here as a church for at least a semester, maybe a semester and a half. The book of Judges. Why study the book of Judges? We covered that last week, a little bit of an introduction to this book. We want to study this book for seven main reasons. Number one, it's God's Word. This is Holy Scripture. This has inside of it all the promises that God's Word clearly lays out. This is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need this book. We're going to study this book because we need to learn how to interpret narratives. We need to learn how to interpret the stories that are in the Bible. It's much easier to interpret passages that just tell us, go do this, go be this, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do. Much easier. But how are we to apply a story in the Bible? We're going to see that as we cover the book of Judges. We're going to study Judges, number three, because sin is a slippery slope. One minute you are compromising in a little tiny area, the next minute you look back and you realize, where did I, where did I go? How did I get here? How did... All of a sudden, I'm stuck in sin. Sin is a slippery slope. Compromise is a slippery slope. Number four, we're going to say this book because evil days are instructive. Evil days are instructive. I hope that when you hear people say, times have never been this bad, it's bleak, it looks like things are hopeless, that you'd be able to say in your heart and in your mind, maybe not so. Just look at the book of Judges. We are in the exact same sin that the book of Judges would relay to us. Number five, judgment is valuable. We want to see God's judgment because judgment, learning about it, is valuable. Number six, God is sovereign. We're going to see his sovereignty on display in really interesting little uh, vignettes throughout the whole book. And number seven, because salvation is great. We want to see God's salvation on display. As J.C. Ryle says, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. So if you haven't read the book of Judges, haven't studied the book of Judges, I am so excited that you're here, that we get to go through these verses together, because it will take the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so we'll dive into Judges chapter 1 this morning. Just a little bit of context for you about the book. Historically speaking, about 500 years before the book of Judges, God told Abraham that his offspring would inherit a land, a promised land of milk and honey. 500 years before That promised land uh, in the book of Judges is given and the conquests happen. God promised Abraham, you're going to receive a land, but not yet. And the reason is explicit in the Bible as to why God says, in about 500 years, you're going to get a land, but not yet. And the reason is he wanted to give all of the Canaanites time to repent. He wants to give them time to repent. And we actually see some of them that do. Rahab, other people, as we go through the book of Joshua, repent. They turn to follow the one true God. So Abraham dies, Isaac dies, Jacob dies, Joseph dies, the exodus happens. Moses leads them into the wilderness and 40 years in the wilderness wandering around at the edge of the promised land. Joshua looks, the book of Joshua looks over the promised land, getting ready to go into it and a a few couple areas of conquest happen. It's mainly a victorious book. But then we move into the book of Judges. Joshua dies. There is no king. What's going to happen to Israel now? There's a note of triumph that God's people are at the edge of the promised land and starting to make a push into what was promised to them 500 years before. But almost instantly, the story goes off the rails. This morning, we are going to see in the book of Judges a graphic picture of compromise. Judges teaches us the power of sin, how it destroys our lives, and how God redeems us. This whole book is a graphic picture of what happens when you trust in your own moral intuition, when your own moral compass determines what you're going to do, what's right or wrong. Remember that the theme verse in this book is every man did that which was right in their own eyes. From the... uh, great false teacher and errant philosopher, Grandmother Willow in Pocahontas. (laughs) This book will teach you not to listen to your heart, 
to gain understanding. She tells Pocahontas that, and I'm not anti-Disney. I love Disney. But as we are speaking in Pasadena, there's a Disney on Ice show that is titled, Follow Your Heart. When you hear those words, now obviously I know what they're saying, dream a dream, pursue your dream, pursue your passion. So again, no dig on Disney whatsoever. But we buy into that philosophy of you get to establish the moral compass, the moral intuition. You make the rules. When you hear follow your heart, you should hear that phrase come with a hiss because that's exactly what the serpent said in Genesis 3. Do you want to be wise in your own eyes? Do you want to be able to see and discern? You don't need God. Eat the fruit. Eat the fruit. And then your eyes will be opened. And you can decide what is right and what is wrong. You don't need God. Follow your heart, Satan said. This is a graphic picture in the book of Judges of what happens when you choose to follow your heart and let your own moral intuition take over. So, Instead of letting every man do that which was right in our own eyes here this morning, we are going to give careful attention to God's word and let him tell us how we are supposed to live. So to that end, I want to pray and I want to ask God's blessing on our time and then we will dive right in. Father, we come before you, a desperate people. We just sang about it. In desperation, we turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Please, God, save. And you did. You've opened blind eyes to be able to see much more than physical blindness. We had spiritual blindness doing what was right in our own eyes. And you spoke into the darkness of our souls, opened our eyes, and showed us Christ. So, Father, I pray that you do the exact same thing again this morning. For those who are saved and for those who are not, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, that we would see Christ that we would see our need for him, that we would see sin for what it is and have done with it once and for all, that we would have a holy hatred for that which offends a holy God, for that which killed our Savior. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and show us Christ. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This morning, we are going to tackle a large chunk of scripture, so uh, bear with me as we zip on through. But four main scenes in the opening of the book of Judges that will give us kind of a, a picture of the slippery slope of compromise. Four main scenes on the slippery slope of compromise. This is the road to moral failure, and it starts with scene number one in Judges chapter one, verses one to ten. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites, to fight against them? So it came about after the death of Joshua. This is a familiar formula. This is the opening of the book of Exodus. It began with the death of Joseph. The opening of the book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. The opening of the book of 1 Kings begins with the death of David. And the opening of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. All in all, it's trying to tell us God doesn't need a person to make his will happen. God would love to use us as servants, but he does not need us. He is the hero. So Joshua dies. What's going to happen? Verse 2, the Lord said to Judah, now that's not Judah the person, it's Judah the tribe. The name is representative of the whole tribe. Judah's going to go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So the people inquired. They say, what are we supposed to do? We're ready to take over this land. What are we supposed to do? And God says, Judah, you go. And verse 3, already we begin to see the compromise. Already we begin to see the compromise. If you want to see scene one as a, a road uh, marker of what moral failure will ultimately look like, then just do what God commands, not the way he requires it. The first step on the slippery slope is seen here in verse 3, in the slippery slope of compromise is to do what God tells you to do just not the way he tells you to do it. Why? How is that seen? Verse 3, Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight together against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They win. They go 
They do what God tells them, just not the way God told them, because what had God said? Judah, you go by yourself, and I'll give you the land. And Judah says, thanks, awesome. Hey, I'm going to take Simeon with me. By the way, Simeon, a tribe of around 10,000 people, tiny little tribe, and Judah still says, Judah, hundreds of thousands of people in the tribe of Judah says, well, we need some help. God, thanks that you're with us, but we need some help. They do exactly what God says. They go into the land, they take over the people group, they drive out the wicked, but they just don't do it the way that God told them to. They drive out 10,000 men. In verse 5, they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. Adonai Bezek, he's the king. Adonai means Lord or king. He's the Lord of Bezek. And they fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled. You would too if you were just being routed. The 10,000 men defeated, you and I would be fleeing too. And they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Adonai Bezek fled, they pursue him, they catch him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. I told you it wasn't going to take very long until this book got bloody. And here we are, just a couple verses in, and we have blood pouring from thumbs and toes that have been cut off. Why? Why thumbs and toes? This is a customary way to humiliate a general. This is a customary way to humiliate a king. Thumbs and Big toes are important. This man, Adonai Bezek, is never going to hold a sword again, and he's never going to run into battle again. Um, this man has been dethroned, demilitarized. I read an article a while back uh, speaking of if you are kidnapped by a terrorist and they ask you which digits you would like removed because they're going to remove one. I just thought that's the worst premise for an article. When would, an, when would a terrorist ever say, which digit would you like removed? And you go, um, just not my thumb. And they go, okay, I won't touch that one. Like when, whoever wrote the article had problems. But they said, uh, your thumbs and your big toes are the most important digits. Second to that are the little guys. Uh, it's said in the article, and I haven't tried this out, but you can't do a pull-up without pinkies. Um, I haven't tried that out because I can't do a pull-up with pinkies, so <laughs> might as well just leave it. I believe the article. Thumbs and big toes are important. And King Bezek, Adonai Bezek, is never going to hold a sword in his hand again. Uh, he's also humiliated because he'll never win a thumb war again. He'll never hail a taxi again. He'll never say, that's a rule of thumb for me. And he'll never be able to thumb through a book. And I have a list of these that goes on and on and on. <laughs> And I'll spare you. But here's the question. We get to this, just a couple verses into this book, and already blood is flowing. And my question to you is, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about the treatment of Adonai Bezek? Is it a little too savage? If you feel uncomfortable about this, and you should to a certain degree, but I want to ask our hearts as we dive into this book, don't be too quick to judge judges, okay? Don't be too quick to say, I know what's right. Some people will look at this with pity and say, oh, poor Adonai Bezek, poor guy. One commentator said, if only the Canaanites could know how much emotional support they receive from modern Western readers. Like we're going through going, oh, you murder, pillage, rape people. Yeah, but oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you. Some look with disgust. This is just too violent. I don't like this. Maybe I won't be here for this series. Uh, another commentator said, Contemporary Western church members who vicariously and avidly gorge themselves on violence via TV and movies have forfeited any right to throw the first stone at the biblical conquest. You can't say, oh, this is disgusting. I don't like this. And then go turn on the latest and greatest television show on Netflix and just engorge yourself with blood and gore. Some look with excitement. Some look and say, see, this is what should have happened earlier and this is what we should do today. Let's not get wonky in our interpretation of scripture, okay? Let's not walk through this and think, okay, we should start doing crusades. Evil men and evil people in the world, let's go cut their toes and, and thumbs off. No, that's not what this is saying. In fact, the new covenant says the exact opposite. Go into the world, and as they persecute you, let them do that. 
You don't go kill people. But here's what I think we should do. If you have sympathy, if you don't like this, if you're enthusiastic, let's not be quick to judge judges, and let's let Adonai Bezek speak for us, okay? Verse 7. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. I did this to 70 kings and 70 nations. And so, as I have done, God has repaid me. Now, he's not saying Yahweh. He doesn't use God's personal name. He's just saying, the power that be that reigns over the universe, I am reaping what I sowed. I deserve this. So if you feel bad for Adonai Bezek, don't, because he doesn't even feel bad for himself. He's saying, yep, this is what I deserve. This is what I get. Adonai Bezek, kings like him are very suitable for this punishment. And that's exactly what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Don't say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Don't say when all these people group go out of the land and you get to enter the land, don't go before the Lord and say, I get to enter because I'm awesome. You say to God, they've been dispossessed and I get to enter because they were wicked and they lost the privilege of being here. It wasn't because of our righteousness. It was because of their wickedness. And that's why God says, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord dispossessed before them, you have inherited the land. So instead of pity, instead of disgust, instead of excitement, we should look at this account with fear and trembling and know with confidence and terror in our hearts that no wicked deed, action, or thought that you and I live out will ever go unpunished. It won't. And we deserve exactly what Adonai Bezek is getting. So Judah does what God commands, just not in the way God commands it. And let's finish this out. Verse, uh, end of verse 7, Adonai Bezek dies. They brought him to Jerusalem. He dies there. And the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword. And they set the city on fire. Afterwards, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country, in the Negev, in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites, and he just routs all of them. They strike all of them, and they destroy them. So this teaches us, on the road to moral failure, on the road to compromise, this teaches us that pragmatic success and spiritual failure can happen at the same time. A strange but very possible combination to be successful and not do what God wants you to do. Just because you're successful doesn't mean that you're doing what God wants. And just because you're not successful doesn't mean that you're not doing what God wants. It's possible for the believer's life to display the marks of success and yet you be a failure in God's eyes. So, scene number one, if you want to live a life of compromise, do what God tells you to do, just not in the way that God tells you to do it. Scene number two, verse 12. Caleb is now the head general. Caleb says, the one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I'm going to give him my daughter, Aksa, for a wife. And we look at that and we go, that's weird. Um, this is actually very romantic because what Caleb is saying is, I want the man who trusts most in God for, for my daughter. I want somebody who will say, God has promised this. I will go do this. I want that person to marry my daughter. So this is actually very romantic. And Othniel is going to be the guy. Verse 13, the first judge that we'll see. He's going to show up uh, and he's going to capture the city. So end of verse 13, he gives him his daughter Aksa for a wife. And it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from her donkey and said to Caleb, what do you, or Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in south of Arad. And they went and they lived with the people. So Othniel is apparently a good judge, a good uh, warrior, but he's not good at making negotiations. So he sends his wife back to Caleb and Caleb gives him a spring. Why all of this information? Because this is a picture of what would happen if you trust God, do what he tells you to do, you would have peace in the land. That's what this snapshot is. You would have peace in the land if you would simply do what God wants. Do what he tells you to do. Trust him to win the day, even though it looks like he's not going to. 
So, verse 17. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephathah and utterly destroyed it. So the name of that city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon, and its territory with Ekron, with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Now, verse 19 should set off a warning light in your mind. Verse 19, now the Lord was with Judah... And they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Wait, why can't God defeat iron chariots? God's with them, and yet they cannot drive out these people. Would God lose against iron chariots? No, he wouldn't. But if you don't even go into battle, then you don't trust God to see him win the day. And Judah says, these people are too scary for us. We're going to hang back. We're not going to go in there because God's with us and we want it to just stay us here, not going into the country. Joshua 17, Joshua was promised by God, you're going to enter the land. People are going to be there. They're going to have iron chariots and please don't freak out because you'll still win. And here they say, you know what? This is too much for us. So God, we're not even going to go. We're not even going to go. They make excuses. And that's the second uh, road marker on the, the path to moral failure here. If you want to compromise, just do what God commands, but not the way he requires it. And then secondly, make excuses for not doing what God requires. Just make excuses. You know, there's, there's iron chariots. God, we just, we don't want to put you in a bind here. This is going to be hard. So let's just forget about this one for today. Make excuses for not doing what God requires. That's what they do. Even though the Lord is with them, they decide we're not going to go. Verse 20, they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had commanded and promised, they drove them out from the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. They didn't drive out the Jebusites. They're a Canaanite people. They're a terrible people, a pagan nation. And these are the exact people that are going to lead Israel to a civil war. These are the women that Solomon's going to intermarry with. These are the people that because they left them in the land, sin still creeps in, enters in, and destroys the nation. Drop down to verse 22. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel, which is formerly Luz. The spies saw a man. Listen to what happens. They see a man coming out of the city. And they said, please, show us the entrance to the city. We'll treat you kindly. So they see a Luzite walking to the city, and they say, hey, can you help us out here? We want to take over the city, but we're going to tell you we're going to take over the city. So when we take over the city, you can take your family and leave. We won't kill you. So he shows them the entrance, verse 23. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let that man and his family go. And what happens? Verse 26, the man went into the land of the Hittites, tells them all about what the people of Israel are doing, Builds a city and names it Luz, which is its name to this day. So Israelite captures Luz, but they don't do it faithfully. They don't do it fully. And so Luz just duplicates itself. It just moves over. This isn't obeying God. This is compromise. God had said in Deuteronomy 7, when you go into the land, don't treat the people with kindness. They had 500 years to repent, and they failed to repent. Those who repent will absolutely receive kindness. Those who don't repent... They have lost the privilege of that. Judgment is coming. These compromises seem so slight. So with just one family, how big is Luz? Let's say it's 12,000 people. Just one family of 12,000 people. And we say, can you help us attack the city? And they go, yeah, sure. Okay, we won't kill you. Just go. And Luz is reborn through this family. And the idolatry and the pagan nation grows. This would be like an oncologist who says to you, you know what, you have a cancerous tumor in your body and I'm going to take out 99% of it, but I'm going to leave 1% because come on, I mean, even cancer has a a reason to be able to enjoy a fruitful life and find fulfillment doing its job. Let's just take 99% out, but we'll leave a little bit. No. If you go to the doctor to have surgery to take cancer out, don't ever say, you know what, If you remove half, do I have to only pay half? 
If you're on that health insurance plan, get off of that health insurance. That's a terrible health insurance plan. If you were to tell the Israelites, look, this one guy, this one area that you let go, let's fast forward and see what they do. This one area of compromise, of sin, let's see what happens if you leave this and let it grow. If you were to tell Israel, what do you think they would do? They'd say, you know what, we should do away with this man. Let's go back and fix it. But this is not how sin works. Sin does not say up front, as you are being tempted, hey, this is everything it's going to cost you. If you go ahead with this specific sin, I will tell you your future, and this is everything it's going to cost you. Sin promises, oh, this will be easy. You can sin here. It'll just cost you this much. And then all of a sudden, it's this huge bill. It just reminds me of like when a repair guy comes over to your house and says, yeah, you know, that'll be 60 bucks. And you're like, great, this is awesome. And I'll have it done in two days. Awesome, this is great. And then all of a sudden, you get the bill, and it's 300 bucks, and it's been three weeks. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If you had told me that up front, I never would have signed on to this. That's what sin does. Sin says, oh, it's just 60 bucks. That's all. You can have what you want. Just 60 bucks. It's only going to cost a couple days of your time. Sin lures us in. We tend to think we can handle sin, don't we? I mean, we tend to think, you know what, I won't get involved in the big stuff, but I'll get involved in the little stuff because I can handle it. I'll never forget the illustration that I heard a pastor use one time of a commercial that they had seen. Uh, It was a a behind-the-scenes of a commercial. It was a shampoo commercial, and there was this lady that was uh, laying down on top of a lion, because that's what they do, apparently, in shampoo commercials. And so she was laying down on top of this lion, basically like, he has a mane, and I have even more beautiful hair if you just use Pantene Pro-V. And so she was laying down on the lion. They're doing the shoot. Some trained lion trainer says, or or some lion trainer says, you know what? Um, I've got a lion. I don't know what his name is. Let's call him Bill, this sweet lion Bill. I've trained him since he was a tiny little lion. Cub, I think, is what they're called. And I'm going to take this lion, and, and you'll pay me money, and we'll just have him lie there. I don't know how we make him lie there. We just, nobody smell like meat or beef jerky. Just lie there, and the lady will lay down on top. We'll do the shoot, and it'll be done. And what happens? Inevitably, what happened in this episode? She gets mauled. This is one of those behind the scenes of, uh, I think it's called animal versus human. And this is one of those moments where you're almost rooting for the animals. You're like, this was the stupidest decision ever that this woman's going to lay down on top of this animal, this lion, and you don't have the foresight to think, you know what, something could potentially go wrong. And when the lion trainer was interviewed, he said, I never saw this coming. I never saw this coming. That's what happens with sin. We lie down on the lion of sin that wants to destroy us, and when it does... We think, man, I never saw this coming. I, I, I just thought it was just going to lie there. I thought it was tame. If you want to compromise, number one, you have to do what God commands, but not the way God requires. Number two, you have to make excuses for not doing what God requires. Just make excuses. Scene number three. This is verses 27 through 36. And this is a lot of words. Let's read through it. But Manasseh, these are different tribes. Listen to what they do or more specifically, do not do, did not take possession of Beit Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. And the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. And it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim's going to do the same thing. Zebulun's going to do the same thing. Asher, verse 31, is going to do the same thing. Naphtali is going to do the same thing, verse 33. And the Amorites are going to force, verse 34, the sons of Dan into the hill country and not allow them to come down to the valley. We progress from Manasseh saying, we'll take over, but we'll force the people into slavery. Forced labor. We'll not drive them out. We'll just put them into forced labor. And it deteriorates down to Dan, which... Dan is a, a tiny little um, tribe. And if you were to picture Israel as a rectangle, Dan was supposed to go right in the middle of the rectangle and take a strip in the middle from east to west. God told them, this is the area that I give to you. This is your allotment. And Dan goes in and says, man, there's a lot of bad guys here. 
And they decide, let's just go up to the north. And they're in the north. Even to this day, Dan is up in the north because there was no war there. So they decide, Amorites, you're too big, you're too strong, we don't want to fight. And they go up to the north. This is a whole list of geographical locations. And it's easy to look at this and go, where, where am I? What am I reading? Why is this even profitable? I don't like geography. So I'll just skip ahead to John. I, I don't want to read this. But I want to plead with you, don't turn these pages because the living God is speaking through these pages. He's speaking through the geography. And he's speaking specifically that seven times in these verses, if we had time to read them all, we'd read them all, but we don't have time. Seven times you see this phrase, they did not drive them out. Not that they were not able to, but that they chose not to. Seven times we read they did not drive them out. That's not tedious language, that's theological language. They're failing to do what God has told them to do. Seven times God accuses them of not driving the people out. And it's not merely physical geography, it's theological geography. It's telling us that if you refuse to do what God has commanded and give a little bit of room for sin, it's going to take over. Manasseh fails to drive out the inhabitants. Instead, they force them into slave labor. They just say, hey, we'll make you slaves. Why? It makes a lot more economic sense. Why do the work when we can get slaves to do the work? And it required less effort to enslave them than to drive them out completely. Less work. Ephraim allows Canaanites to live among them. Zebulun opts for forced labor. Asher decides to go live with the Canaanites instead of forcing the Canaanites to live with them. They knock on the door. Hey, you know what? God told us that we're supposed to get rid of you. But can we just have a bunk bed here tonight? We just want to hang out. We just, we, we're not going to get rid of you. And Dan decides to go where there's least resistance. Guys, this, this section is all common sense. This makes sense. This is common sense. Why, wait, why, why drive these people out when we can keep them to be our slaves? We'll be nice to them. We'll show them kindness. This is common sense, but faithless sense. Common sense, but faithless sense. Instead of doing what God has required, they choose to do what is common sense. It makes sense to them. And common sense gets worse and worse and worse because sin makes you stupid. As we say all the time at this church, sin just makes you stupid. Sin is stupid, it makes you stupid, and it will ultimately destroy you. Look at the progression. In the beginning of this text, in verse 27, they're owning, or in the beginning of the chapter, they're owning whole people groups. Judah just goes in, owns a whole people group. Then they're just letting a few people stay alive. Then they're letting everybody stay alive, just forcing them into slave labor. And then they themselves will be taken over and forced into labor, slave labor themselves. That's why this book, the book of Judges, is the canonization of Israel. It's Israel supposed to be holy and going and dispossess the people of the land and make the land a holy place. It's Israel going in, failing to do that so that the Canaanites and the pagan people around them make Israel unholy. Compromise always begins small. Compromise always creeps in. It's never just full-blown rebellion at the beginning. It always creeps in. Little disobedience here, little disobedience there. And before you know it, you're going to look back and realize, how did I get here? How did I get here? One commentator says, the path to apostasy, to finally just denying God, I don't want to follow him. The path to apostasy is paved by what you are willing to tolerate. The path to apostasy is paved by what you are willing to tolerate. You know, I don't, I don't have to be faithful in this. I can tolerate this. I don't have to obey God here. Remember, Jesus says, if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you're faithless in little, much will be taken away from you. The verses that we will see, not only this morning, but also through the rest of our time in this book, underscore the importance of just little faithfulness. Faithfully dealing with that one little sin, taking care of it, removing it from your life, and doing whatever it takes. Because what begins as just tolerating sin will become apostasy. What seems so reasonable and common sense will prove to be lethal. Living with the Canaanites leads to worshiping with the Canaanites. Tolerating Baal's people will sooner or later, before you know it, turn into you bowing before Baal yourself. It seems tiny at the time, but if you fail to conquer those sins, those sins will conquer you. 
the Israelites now, at the end of chapter 1, are living alongside idol-worshiping Canaanites. And like buried mines in this text, these idols lay dormant in Judges 1. They're all in the midst of the Israelite people. And they're just ready to explode in their spiritual lives. And basically, as we walk through the book of Judges from, from this point forward, it will just be stepping on these landmines of sin that they failed to conquer. But this doesn't end our time this morning. We have four scenes. We've only covered three. Scene number one, do what God commands, but not the way God requires. Scene number two, just make excuses for not doing what God requires. Scene number three, do what God requires, but do it half-heartedly. God said, dispossess the people. So you say, okay, I'll keep a little people group around. I'll, I'll, just, I'll destroy everybody except for one person. Just do what God requires half-heartedly. Scene number four, the final scene. This is chapter two, verses one through five, and we'll finish here. When you find yourself looking at the path behind you and you realize it's paved with sinful decisions, little decisions of faithful in, faith less in little, faith less in little, faith less in little, therefore faith less in much, and you say, what do I do now? If you want to just continue on the road to compromise, then you do what Israel does here and don't repent for your sins. Don't repent for your disobedience. If you want to keep on walking this road of compromise, look back, realize you messed up, and go, eh, I'm sorry, but don't repent. Verse 1 in chapter 2. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. Why does it say this? Why does it say the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim? Does the angel of the Lord live in Gilgal? Like, oh, it's a bright new day. Oh, I have an assignment. I got to go to Bochim. Why does it say he goes through Gilgal to Bochim? Here's why it says that. In Joshua chapter 5, Gilgal is the location where God brought all of his people together. You can read it on your own time, Joshua chapter 5. And God said, today I'm making a covenant with you. I'm rolling away the reproach of, of Egypt. Rolling away, the, the word for roll away in Hebrew is Gilgal. So that's why it's called Gilgal, to roll away. The reproach of Egypt, everything that happened back there and your disobedience and your uh, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, all of that is gone, forgiven over, and you are my covenant people, and I'm making a covenant with you to give you the land. He made that promise at Gilgal. This is the place where God had forgiven their sins, entered into a covenant with them, and shown them kindness. And so the angel of the Lord goes through this place as a reminder to us and to the people that we are saved by God's grace, not by our works. We're saved by His kindness. As the angel shows up in Bochim, he says, hey, I just, I just came from Gilgal. Does that remind you of any place, Israelites? Does it remind you of anything, Israelites? I just showed up from Gilgal. Do you remember what happened there, Israelites? There's a big monument stone. The Ebenezer had been raised there to remember God's faithful, even in our faithlessness. So, from Bochim, and he says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said I'm never going to break my covenant with you. I made a covenant, and I'm not breaking it. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. This is what you're supposed to do, people. This is what Israelites are supposed to do. But you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed me. Go back to chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants because they had these iron chariots. It would be easy for us as we read through Judges to go, man, those poor, poor Israelites, they're just not strong enough to do what God's required. Like God's setting the bar this high, and they're trying their best, but they're just not strong enough. It'd be easy to feel sorry for the Israelites, to have pity. But chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is God telling us what actually happened to set our emotional compass straight. If you start to feel sorry for the Israelites, oh man, they had it rough. 
This is difficult. This is challenging. God cut them a little slack. It'd be easy for us to think that they could not obey God in chapter one. But God turns around in chapter two and says, no, 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 you could have. It's not that you could not. It's that you would not. You chose not to obey me. Can I ask you that question? Where are you currently saying in your life, God, I can't. I can't obey you here. I can't obey you here. I, there's just too much going on. There's, uh, God, you know. You'll have grace with me. You'll, you'll cut me slack. I just can't. Where in your life are you saying can't when God says, no, no, it's won't. You won't do it. You can if you want to, but you just choose not to. The reality is, if you are wanting to follow Jesus and he in his grace is calling you to do that, there is no such thing as I can't. There's no such thing as I can't for a believer. If God calls you to obedience, he has given you a way to do that. God will never, how many times do we think of our God this way, erroneously think of our God this way, that he's saying, jump, we're saying, how high? And he's saying, higher than you possibly ever could. And it stinks to be you, and I just get to laugh at you. How many times do we think that God's setting us a standard that we say, I can't do that. And then he turns around and says, no, 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 it's so that you won't. And we go, this is unfair. This is impossible. God, what are you doing? God has promised us no temptation will overtake you, but what is common to man, and he is faithful, who will always provide you a way of escape. There is no such thing as I can't for a believer. It's just I won't. If you're in sin, it's not because you can't obey God. It's because you won't obey God. Can I plead with you today to check your heart for pockets of I can't? There are three I can'ts that I was thinking through this week. Three main spheres of I can't. I can't forgive them. I can't confront them. And I just can't beat this temptation. I think those are the three hardest ones that we live in. I can't forgive them. You just don't know what they've done to me. I can't forgive them. No, no, it's you won't forgive them. Because Jesus forgave you, and you have sinned and offended God more than every single person in this entire universe. If they all sinned against you and offended you, one of your sins against God is more heinous than all of everyone's sin against you. It's more offensive. And God said, I forgive you through Jesus. So it's not that you can't forgive, it's that you're just choosing not to. Speaking hard truths, confronting somebody in sin. This is not fun. I really don't like doing this. But how many times have I said, you know what, I can't, I can't today. I just, I don't want to ruin our friendship, but I, I can't do this. No, no, no. It's I won't. I won't choose to do this with love and grace and truth. Maybe it's temptation. I just can't conquer. I can't beat this temptation. No, no, no. You can. You just won't. Let's not be fatalistic Christians. You have the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead living inside of you. You can do this through Christ who strengthens you in these moments to do exactly what he has promised for you to do. So we read that Jesus, uh, that God in his word says, no, no, you, it's not that you couldn't, it's that you wouldn't. You have not obeyed me. End of verse 2. What, what have you done, Israel? Therefore I have said this, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides. And their gods will snare, will be a snare to you. Idols are snares. This is what God said. You are supposed to have obeyed me. You failed to obey me. And therefore, my judgment upon you will be giving you exactly what you're asking for. Most of the time, God's judgment in our lives is delayed. And it's just him saying, fine, you can have what you want. Israel said, well, we don't really want to fight. Okay. You won't fight for a couple decades. And then you're going to have a war. And you're going to need me to win that war. Well, we just want to live in a peaceful, symbiotic relationship with these pagans. Okay, go ahead. Try that. All God is going to give you is the chance to try that. That's his judgment. Go ahead and try it. What's their response? Verse 4, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. So they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Bochim just means weepers. Uh, Im in Hebrew is uh, plural ending, S. So Bokim is weepers, those who are weeping. They cry out to God, they weep, tears are pouring out of their eyes, and they sacrifice to the Lord. This is good. 
But I think the rest of the book of Judges will tell us it's not enough. And this is the danger for us as people who want to do what God tells us to do. Don't confuse tears with genuine change and repentance. Repentance does not equal crying. Now, usually true repentance, you will weep over your sins. You will mourn over your sins. But if you just weep and nothing changes, then it's not true biblical repentance. Matthew Henry says this, this is good. Them crying, this is very good. It's a sign that the word they heard made an impression upon them. It's a wonder that sinners can ever even read their Bibles without dry eyes. But this wasn't enough. They wept, but we do not find that they reform or repent. That they went home and destroyed all the remains of idolatry and idolaters among them is not found in this book. And then he says this, many are melted under the word that would harden again before they're cast into a new form. How many times do we hear that? How many times do we see that in youth ministry, the the mountaintop experience where somebody goes up on a mountain, they get away from the chaos of this world, they hear the gospel and they say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. And then they come down the mountain back into the valley and they just go back to normal. They weep, but they're hardened again in their sin before they're shaped into a new mold. To repent, to truly repent is to do so no more a true forsaking of compromise at whatever cost. Repentance is always going to involve tears and true sorrow, but not all tears mean true repentance. And the question that I believe the author of Judges is having us ask here is, is there anything more lasting than water being produced here? Does anything go beyond Israel's tear ducts in this moment? There's two types of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 tells us there's worldly sorrow that leads to death. There's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Both cry, but both finish differently. There's a difference between grief. There's a difference between sorrow over the consequence of your sin. God says, you know what, you didn't obey, and therefore this is the problem. They go, ah, we don't want the problem. Even now, Joel chapter 2, verse 12 says, even now, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, but return to me with all of your heart. So it ends with them weeping and with them sacrificing to the Lord. And the question for us is, will they truly repent? Is this true repentance? And you know the end of this book. This is not genuine repentance. So it's a lesson for us to learn that just because you're sorrowful over your sin does not mean it's true, genuine repentance. So if you want to compromise If you want to follow that road of failure, that road of moral compromise, that road of going down, and before you know it, you look back and you realize, oh my word, where have I I wound up? This is awful. Number one, you do what God commands, but not the way he requires. Number two, you make excuses for not doing what God requires. Number three, you do what God requires, but just half-heartedly, and then when you're confronted in that, just don't repent. And you'll find yourself doing exactly what the book of Judges tells us. Now, how do we wrap this up? Two simple things as we come to conclusion. Two S's that we all need to take with us as we go home. The first is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. If you compromise, I can guarantee you, you will be destroyed. The one who lives the life of compromise is getting ready for failure, getting ready for destruction. The person who falls into sin never falls very far. We tend to look at people who have fell into moral failure and we think, oh, wow, look at how awful that is. Look at how could that possibly have happened? No, no. The person who falls into sin, it's not a very uh, far fall for them. It's just a bunch of little moments of compromise and tolerating sin. And notice who tolerates sin in this book. It's God's people. It's the people who ate manna. It's the people who saw water just shoot from a rock. That's why Richard Baxter says, Take heed lest you be the cook who dies of starvation. Take heed lest you warn others about perishing and perish yourself. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to be serious about our sin. Be killing sin, John Owen said, or it will be killing you. So today is the day to repent. Today is the day to call sin what it is, to not compromise, to not make excuses, to not be half-hearted in your obedience or disobedience. Today is the day to say, enough's enough. I don't want to compromise. I need help. And that leads to number two. Not just the seriousness of sin, but the sweetness of the Savior. When you see, and all of us have, that we've compromised in our sin, we've compromised in our walk, we need to run to Jesus. Only at the foot of the cross do we find a way made for our sin to be forgiven, for the compromise to end, and for righteousness to be lived out. And it's not because you and I are awesome or are able to do that on our own. It's because God in His grace has given us His Holy Spirit through the gospel and an ability to live out righteousness. You cannot do it on your own, but with the Holy Spirit living within you and Jesus as your greatest treasure, there is no I can't for you. You can obey today. We need each other. We need each other. That's why we gather together on Sundays. We need each other. Getting a grip, one commentator says it this way, getting a grip on the staggering limitlessness of Christ's love for us is not something the believer can do in blissful isolation. You need, we need each other to look at each other and say, don't compromise. Sin is serious and it will destroy you, but Jesus is so much better. Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. Follow him. Friend, I want to plead with you now to turn to the one who never did that which was right in his own eyes. Each one of us does that which is right in our own eyes. We have a moral compass that it's failing, it's flawed, and we all decide we think we know what's right. And Jesus said, I will never trust my own moral compass, even though he is God, very God. What did he say? I always do the will of my Father. It's my food to do my Father's will. He sets the agenda, and I just live what he tells me to do. And because he did that on your behalf and died, taking your sin upon himself and rising from the dead, conquering sin and death, you can be free. You can be forgiven. You can live righteously by his merit. So let's fix our eyes, not on what we want, but what the Father wants and live according to the power of the Spirit, obeying Him in everything we do. Father, we thank You so much for our time this morning in Your Word. So precious, so deep, so rich. May we all leave with a serious sense of sin and a sweeter savor of the Savior. I pray it in the name of Jesus, our great High Priest. Amen. Let's stand together and confirm these things to our hearts as we sing. O oh, great 